are listening to the AI with Maribel Lopez podcast, or AI with ML. If this is your first time listening, thank you for joining. The AI with ML podcast is produced bi-weekly with occasional bonus episodes. This podcast shares the stories of the people behind the new world of data and AI. What are they creating and why does it matter? If you like this episode, please subscribe so you can easily find the podcast again. You can also share your feedback and ideas with me on Twitter and LinkedIn. All links are in the show notes. Extended show notes can be found at AIwithML.com slash podcasts. I hope you'll enjoy the show. You are listening to the AI with Maribel Lopez podcast or AI with ML. If this is your first time listening, thank you for joining. The AI with ML podcast is produced bi-weekly with occasional bonus episodes. This podcast shares the stories of the people behind the new world of data and AI. What are they creating and why does it matter? If you like this episode, please subscribe so you can easily find the podcast again. You can also share your feedback and ideas with me on Twitter and LinkedIn. All links are in the show notes. Extended show notes can be found at AIwithML.com slash podcasts. I hope you'll enjoy the show. In this podcast, I interview Dr. Carlotta Berry. Carlotta is a professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the Rolls-Holman Institute of Technology, RHIT. She is one of the team of engineering and science faculty who created the first multidisciplinary minor in robotics at RHIT. She is also the Dr. Lawrence J. Giacoletto Endowed Chair for Electrical and Computer Engineering. She's been named a distinctive fellow by the American Society of Engineering Education in recognition of her outstanding contributions to undergraduate engineering education. Finally, she's just an interesting and kind individual. I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I am excited to be here today with Carlotta Berry. I feel like I say I'm excited to be with people all the time, but in this particular case, I am truly excited. I've been following her work. I've been listening to other podcasts that she's been interviewed on, and it's really wonderful to have such great leaders in STEM And I thought maybe we could start by having you tell us a little bit about you and how you got into the robotics field. Absolutely. So my journey started probably as a little girl. Um, I always wanted to be a school teacher. um, My mom's a school teacher. My grandmother was a piano teacher. And I just love my dollies and I loved holding school for my dollies. So actually my journey began with teaching. All I really wanted to be was a teacher. But I also loved math and science, but I figured like, you know, teachers love math and science. And then around middle school, I had a principal tell my mom that there were some wasted opportunities here and that she should consider putting me in a magnet school um, because my true capabilities were not being used. And so in that transition to that magnet school, I became exposed to more math and STEM topics. And in high school, I had a career counselor ask me, had I considered engineering? And I tell this story all the time, no cell phones, no internet, telling my age. Um, So I walked to the library after school and I looked up engineer because I thought it was a train conductor, found out it was not. 
And it looked like it <laughs> might be interesting. <laughs> so I decided on engineering before robotics. And I got a dual degree from Spelman College in Georgia Tech because I still wanted to hold on to my math degree just in case that engineering thing didn't work out. I could still be a math teacher. And luckily it did. So the robotics came along when I was an undergraduate student in engineering and I took a robotics course. And I was a little disappointed to learn that although we learned about some really cool things in robotics, only the grad students could touch the robot, right? These were really expensive robots. And I even back then knew there were some benefits to hands-on learning and was like, this isn't any fun. You're going to make me write the code and the algorithm, but I can't play with the thing. So I was like, that's no cool. So my first job after graduating from engineering school, I was a controls and robotics engineer. So as a working engineer, I finally got to touch the robots. And my love for that discipline was born and it continued all the way through graduate school and my PhD. So I'm a controls and a manufacturing and robotics engineer. And the cool thing about it are things that I've discovered once I found my love for it. The biggest one being the multidisciplinary connections. That's something that I never knew of when I first started studying robotics, but it's actually one of the most important things about robotics because I am a proponent of diversity in STEM. And by studying a discipline that brings in people from so many different communities that can work together, it actually shows an example of that. I think one of the things that's so interesting about technology is you can't you can't have it be disconnected to have right. it work. And I think this notion of multidisciplinary is really where you start to see that come alive, right? The robotics field is a big field. You know, it says that your expertise included what they called educational mobile robotics, which yeah. I, I didn't know a lot about. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that is too for the other people that might not be familiar. Absolutely. So I work at an, a primarily undergraduate teaching institution. It's actually one of the number one in the United States. So because of that, a big part of what we do as professors is not just teaching, but engineering education. So now my undergraduate students are mm -hmm. learning robotics from me, but they're also learning about the ethics of engineering design and how to design problems and how to teach these things where, just like you said, you're not looking at it through these siloed perspectives anymore. So when I teach robotics, I teach it to students in mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, computer science, software engineering, biomedical engineering. And I talk to them about things like human-robot interaction to get people to stop seeing their innovation through this cool, look at this technology thing I'm creating, but look at it through the lens of how is it going to impact the world around me? How are people going to use it? Is it going to be biased? Is it going to be just? Is it going to be fair? There's lots of exa examples of that. So by studying engineering education and mobile robotics education, I work on teams of what's the most appropriate way to design courses to teach our future engineers, the engineers of 2020 and where they will go work and what they will have to do. Because I tell my students all the time, you're not going to go work anywhere where you're in a cubicle working with only computer scientists and never have to talk to anyone else about anything else. You have to understand each other's language and be able to work together to design a product that is actually beneficial for a large swath of the community. I think one of the challenges we've had in the past is that people have been too siloed in yeah. terms of what they were doing. And therefore, 
what they were trying to accomplish might not have necessarily been realistic. And I want to talk about that more in a minute. Um, But before we get there, you have this really interesting term. Is it noir stem steminist? I made it up. You You can say it however you like, but I like to say noir steminist. I would tell a story about it. My daughter was helping me with some of my videos. She's 13 and has been in STEM since she was born. And I was saying the word on a recording and she goes, mommy, I looked it up. It's a French word and you're saying it wrong. And I was like, you may be right, but since I made it up, it doesn't matter. Uh, But basically what it was is I feel like I wanted to find a way to represent myself as a woman who promoted STEM, but also have a special emphasis, emphasis on diversifying STEM to get more black and brown people into STEM fields. And I couldn't think of a way to represent that. So it's like, I'm a STEMinist, but I'm also something on top of that. And I had just seen that, you know, in French, the feminine word for black is noir. Um, probably saying it wrong. And I want to apologize for any French speakers who are listening. So I basically just married those two together. And it also had another um, um, purpose that I don't tell a lot of people. But when I first started sharing a lot of my ideas about this vision and purpose, and this epiphany that I got while I was on sabbatical when the pandemic struck, I had a hard time finding my post on social media. And so sometimes I would go, oh, I really want to go back to that post where I said X, Y, or Z. So I need, I was like, I need a word that I can search for and get back to my content. So that was the other reason for this name, because I knew that since it did not exist, if I searched it, only my things would come up. And my grand and evil plan has now come together because if you now go to Google and you search that word, all my things come up. (laughs) It's so unique. And I think this concept of personal branding so that you can get your message out and be heard, you know, for in in my world, Maribel Lopez is sort of like Janet Smith. (laughs) So (laughs) it's actually very hard to differentiate. Yeah, it's it's yeah. really the Latin American equivalent of Janet Smith, right? So here we are. Yeah. And it's like you Google Maribel Lopez and sometimes you get me and sometimes you get amazing artists and all sorts of cool <laughs> right. people. But to your point, uh, it's not necessarily me. So I'm thrilled to hear that you did that. And I think it's a really great idea that other people should consider. You and I just started to touch on a couple of other topics, right? So um One is whether or not what we create represents reality. The second is uh, the concept of diversity in in STEM. So um, maybe we could spend a minute talking about AI, biases, and ethics are a very hot topic that I talk to a lot of people about right now. Is this an issue in the robotics field? And and if so, what should we do about it? Absolutely. In fact, I gave a presentation to um, a set of college students yesterday about that. And it is. And it is because AI, robotics, machine learning, deep learning, they're all so deeply ingrained and tied together. So, for example, if I have a robot, I may use artificial intelligence on the brain or the controller in order for it to have things like drive around and recognize people or engage or interact with people. So one of the examples I gave yesterday is I knew a team of um, roboticists at my old school they designed a humanoid robot that would greet people when they walked in the room. So the way that they trained the AI and machine learning was giving it a bunch of data. And the data was images of members of the lab. What interesting, as you may know, is there's not a lot of black women doing PhDs in robotics or PhDs in engineering education in general. So of course, the AI and the machine learning was fed with primarily the white students, the Asian students, et cetera. So guess who the robot did not recognize when they walked in the room? 
man, right? Because it had not been trained on a rich enough data set with respect to women and people with brown or, or black skin. So we talk a lot about how all these things are very ingrained. And so it's kind of like all people have some prejudice and some bias. Our work has to be making sure it does not show up in our technology. And the way that you do that is by having diverse multidisciplinary teams in the room and having those voices represented in these data sets that you are using to train your models so that you can recognize when something's like, hey, that output does not look correct. You don't send these things out into the world to actually be deployed on these communities and let them notice it. You know, there have been a couple of examples of that, in particular, the one that the Coded Bias documentary is about, where they deploy this image recognition system and then discover that it does not recognize black and brown faces. If you bring diverse people into the room when you are developing these systems and you have someone examining external, what kind of user testing are you doing? What kind of data are you using? You don't have to go forward and have these things happen. Just recently, the Algorithmic Justice League and the Black and AI actually had to um, reach out to the IRS because they were talking about using these image recognition algorithms on citizens to do something with our taxes. Never totally understood what it was, but they had to, that was like this outcry, like, don't you realize there's bias in this stuff? You can't start using this until we fix some of this. So all of that is very closely tied to robotics because all of those technologies are very closely tied together. I think this concept of having diverse voices in the room is something that everybody needs to think about. And I know that many people started their technology journey before that was really a concept yeah. that was out in the field. And it is very hard to unwind something once you've got it all the way down yes. the road. And the lost effort and the inability for it to do what it's supposed to do. The other thing that kind of bothers me is that people do the one and done. They A lot of times they assume with things like AI that you build it, and then it just works. And that you yeah. don't need to go back and retest it and figure yeah. out what it's doing. It's like a living entity in a lot of ways, and you got to make sure it's living the right way. So yeah. this is one of the things that I've been talking to people about. It's like, okay, you know, you've got to start at the beginning with the ethical principles, with the diversity. You have to do data augmentation because a lot of people don't have the right data sets. Things have changed also in terms of if you use historical records, Historical records oftentimes are just filled with bias. So you might have started training it on something right, that you thought right. was a good idea, but it turns out yeah. it's not a good idea. Um, so societal norms change. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting things that we have to think about when we're creating these. And, you know, the, the other thing that I know I've experienced and that you've probably experienced as well is this concept of being an individual going into a room and not seeing anyone that looks like them. You know, right. we were just talking about this and I know we're both about diversity in STEM. So when we think about this and when we're talking to people, um, I know it's harder if they don't see anybody in the room that looks like them. Do you have any thoughts or strategies on how to help diverse candidates in STEM overcome that kind of challenge? Well, another presentation I give, it's funny because everything you ask is uh, the things that I talk about. We're all over it. But I also talk about that it's not a leaky pipeline because there's no linear or straight path from point A to point B. Because if that was really true, we could just push, keep pushing people into the pipeline. The challenge is that it's actually an obstacle course. And so one of the things I do to help people with the challenges is make them aware of it. I like to say that when I started my engineering journey, I was not aware, which made me have a very difficult time in the beginning. I never thought about quitting necessarily because I feel like I had invested too much and gone too far to turn back. 
but it's kind of like this dichotomy of, I want to recruit more. I want to have a critical mass. But then somebody's like, don't you feel kind of torn about bringing black women and, and women um, and brown women into these spaces, knowing that they're going to deal with some of these biases and this misogynoir and all these kind of things. Yeah, but we got to get a critical mass if things are going to change. So what I like to say is the coping mechanisms for helping them to deal with it is awareness. First of all, unlike what I had, I want to tell you about the challenges. I want to tell you about the obstacles. I want to give you some comments that you can say to that snarky guy sitting in class with you who says girls aren't good at math and you really shouldn't be here. I want to help you with that, but I want to also give you advice about building community, finding your network, being able to identify role models who look like you, as well as allies and advocates who don't look like you, but are willing to support you through that process, because it's very important that we have you there, but we don't want you to leave damaged, right? We want you to thrive when you're walking out the door instead of just surviving. It really makes me sad that I graduated from college 30 years ago, and I'm talking to women and men in STEM right now who are dealing with some of the same things I dealt with. That means we still haven't done enough because I want you there, but I don't want you to have to go through what I went through, you know? And so I think it's important that we do that and we cannot um, decouple these things, right? That intersectionality, that innovation, that ethics is all so very important. That's a big part of engineering education and robotics education is I cannot teach you really cool ways to code a robot and develop control algorithms on a robot, but never talk to you about bias and equity and that you're designing these for humans and what is the uncanny valley and what does it mean when people are creeped out by a two human looking robot? All of that is equally as important because sometimes people will put engineers and technologies in a box. Like they only care about this technical stuff and not how it affects people. We do care about how our stuff is deployed and used and how it affects the people around. Well, and I think as we get closer and closer to having more robotics living around us, this is going to become a, a ever more pressing issue. And something that you mentioned is also very interesting. Even in your later career years, I think it's important to have this concept of your own personal board of advisors that can yeah. kind of help you figure out where you need to go next, because you do need sounding boards that are outside the company, that are outside your family, to help you get to your next level. And I think that that's something that we should all be cultivating as individuals, uh, regardless of if you're male or female. I think that personal advisory board is important, but I think it's particularly important for women in tech to do this. Yeah. Now, I know we covered a lot of ground, but one of the things I really wanted to ask you about as somebody who is at the forefront of uh, robotics, what excites you about robotics today? Well, my PhD, something you mentioned that we hadn't talked about yet, is actually in human-robot interaction, which is a little bit different because as an electrical and controls engineer, you would expect my PhD to probably lean more towards the technical controls electronics side. But because I think people are such an integral part of STEM and that's what makes it so exciting, that's where my vision is. So what excites me about where robotics is going is the human aspects of how we're going to integrate people into it. So even if we're talking about autonomous vehicles, figuring out how are people going to be able to engage with them? My, in my PhD, I had a, a user study where I had people like my mom do it because, you know, a big part of the future is what about these assisted robotics or these companion robotics for the elderly? You're talking about people who may have never used a, a computer and can barely use a cell phone. If you're going to design a system that's now going to be the maid, like Rosie the maid from the Jetsons for the elderly or somebody that keeps them company or brings them their medicine or reminds them to get up in the morning, 
You've got to design these things to be effective, efficient, usable, user-friendly, easy to use. So these are some of the things that excite me about the future of robotics, not just the technical aspects, but how are these systems being designed so that if they're going to be ubiquitous in our household, can people use them and not be afraid of them? You know, it's going to be beyond just the cat riding on the Roomba anymore, but what happens next, right? And how is that going to be used? So that's what excites me a lot about the future, not just autonomous vehicles, but the people. And another thing I mentioned is the ethics of it. So now you got a, a robot or an autonomous vehicle. And let's say, because, you know, I, I live an hour from work, so I cannot wait for my autonomous vehicle because I can grade and I can sleep and all that. But what if the car makes a mistake? Who gets sued? What if it can't recognize that, you know, that's a baby and a mom in the crosswalk and want to veer on the sidewalk where there's two kids walking to school? How does a robot answer those kind of ethical questions? I think these are the things that excite me about the future of where we're going is how do we get to the point that these things can happen safely and without bias? I, I've spent a lot of time looking at uh, the IoT landscape. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about the IoT landscape is that we've always talked about this concept of machine-to-machine communication, but we haven't necessarily talked about the machine-to-person dynamic that will happen in robotics. And I think that that, they're now calling it the human-plus-machine partnership, and there's lots of different ways of of talking about it. But exactly what you were talking about, there's such a huge emphasis also on the user experience because, you know, somebody's grandmother probably can't understand how to use a robot. And what right, happens right. to that robot when yeah. something goes wrong and it needs to be fixed and it gives you error code 42936. I mean, that's not Look at an HRI is expectations yeah. of communication. Do I want my robot to talk to me? Do I want it to be a computer screen that I type on? Do I want it to give it me buzzes and beeps? Um, and, and how do how does mm-hmm. it expect to receive from me, right? So it has to have a model for the intentions of the robot, the human being, and how they they want to engage and how they are most comfortable. You know, some people debate about whether you know these um, ro- robot um, receptionists or mu- museum tour guys, and you know they even have AI now that looks just like a person. Am I more comfortable with that? Or would I be more comfortable if my robot looked like a box and just told me that the Van Gogh was back there on aisle three? I don't know. You know, <laughs> where's the answer to that? You know, and it, and it may be different for different people. I know when I've right. seen robots that look a little too human, that uncanny valley thing really is. It's real. It's a yeah. little it's a little strange. It's a little creepy. Right. And I'd like my robot to look more like a robot. And I'm hoping that it learns how to make a really good cup of coffee because I can yep. entirely <laughs> use that in my life. That, yeah. that would be a necessary. So um, we have covered a lot of ground. And to wrap up, I just wanted to ask the bonus question. Is there a recommendation for a book, an activity, a place to go that you'd like the audience to know about? Yes, there there are several, um, but of course I'm very self-serving. So a lot of my recommendations are going to be things that I'm affiliated with and tied to. So during summer 2020, I was co-founder of Black in Robotics and Black in Engineering, which are both organizations that promote STEM diversity and equity and justice in those fields. So I highly encourage following them on Twitter, um, Instagram, as well as their websites. They have YouTube channels. Um, and content about their call to action and things for creating and promoting an anti-racist institution because Black and engineering is a lot of 
professors in black and robotics is a lot of roboticists. I also would like to promote, I do have a book that I wrote on robotics education because I know you asked about it. It's, it's kind of dated and old, but it still works. It's multidisciplinary um, robotics. Um, and then also Dr. Ayana Howard, who is a co-founder of Black and Robotics and is one of the first Black women roboticists that I was ever aware of. She has a book that came out last year, and I believe it's called Sex, Race, and Robotics. And it looks at bias in robotics. So I would also encourage people to pick up her book there. It's available on Amazon. Carlotta, as always, you're insightful. You're doing amazing work. Thank you so much for all you do for the community. And I look forward to seeing all of the wonderful people that you're teaching come out and do amazing things. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you for listening. Show notes, subscription links, and additional content can be found at aiwithml.com slash podcast. Until next time, wishing you all the best. Thank you for listening. Show notes, subscription links, and additional content can be found at aiwithml.com slash podcast. Until next time, wishing you all the best.